Yeah, so basically today I'm going to try and do something quite ambitious, which is um, basically what I'd like to do is to talk to you about the roots of Article 26. Article 26 has been mentioned frequently and um, the project that I currently work on is called Article 26 and it takes its name from the Declaration of Human Rights. It was named by Nick Sagovsky, was your idea. Um, and the particular aspect of Article 26 from which the name derives is the fact that when it refers to higher education and the right to higher education, it's that it should be access to higher education should be based on merit rather than anything else. If you've got the ability to study in higher education, that should be you should be entitled to do so. So what I'd like to do today is to talk to you about the roots of the project, where where it came from, where and how that essentially has helped shape my PhD research. And I'd like to talk to you about there were some of my research findings from my PhD. Now I'm currently in the middle of writing my empirical chapters. So I kind of I don't feel a bit sorry for you having to hear my my me being mid thought about certain things and how I'm trying to present what I or how I'm trying to say critical things about my research. But the three particular things I want to talk to you about and in reference really to how that brings it back round to Article 26 and the work that's in progress and how my research findings have already started to shape the way that I think about the work of the project and what it can do in the future. So to start with um, to start with where where the work, the foundations of the work. Up until quite recently, people found it quite surprising that the focus of my work was on refugees in higher, refugees and forced migrants' access to higher education. Um, because it seemed to be a very nuanced and specialist area, given that there were so many other huge issues that people face when they sought asylum in the UK. Well, why would higher education be a priority amidst everything else that people have to deal with? However, I. Um, I spent 10 years working for Save the Children, and my work within Save the Children was in the protection theme. The protection theme was focused on advocating and supporting children from abroad who were either um, trafficked into the UK for exploitation, or sought asylum with, or without their parents or a guardian. And my specialist area was unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. That was my focus within my work. And Advocacy was central to everything we did in Save the Children. We thought we were very good at it, we were ahead of our time in terms of the things we were calling for. However, one thing that we didn't do or failing to do at that time was actually ask the children and young people that we worked with what they wanted to do, what, 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 they, what their concerns were. So they established a project called Brighter Futures, the purpose of which was to support young refugees and asylum seekers to identify an issue that they cared about and were concerned about and to train them and work with them in terms of how to self-advocate on a particular issue. Now the group I worked with, the only, who are based in Manchester, the only thing they would work on was access to higher education. There were many people within that group, some people had status, they're refugees, but many didn't have, their status was unresolved and as such they, once reaching, upon reaching 18, they were unable to go into university because they were charged tuition fees, the international rate, and they also um, had no access to any form of funding to be able to pay those fees. It was hugely disheartening to go through the British education system to gain fantastic exam results in spite of horrendous issues they were having to deal with, um, to then not be able to progress and go to university. So against my better judgment, I'm very honest about the fact that I tried to dissuade the group from doing this. I thought it was a terrible idea. They were never going to have any success. So I was very honest about that. But um, anyway, we embarked on this campaign and that's when I met Nick Sagovsky. That's when we came into contact with Nick during the course of trying to work out what we could actually campaign on and how the campaign could take shape. And with Nick, we started to, this is a very bridged version of a very long process, 
we started to negotiate meetings with vice chancellors and the young people, we worked with them on negotiation techniques and tactics so they could meet with vice chancellors and essentially persuade them to offer opportunities within their institutions for students from a forced migrant background who have no access, otherwise couldn't access their university. Most vice chancellors upon meeting these young people were, were blown away by what they were prepared to do to try and further their education. To the point we had VCs handing out prospectuses and all sorts during meetings. So they were very impressive. And they were so impressive that in 2000 and 2010, Nick and I co-founded Article 26. <coughs> the purpose of the project really was to marry the opportunities being created by universities with students who wanted to take up those opportunities. So much has happened in the past six years that I'll come back to where the project is at the minute and what it actually does. But this really, the experience of working with these young people and their lived reality in terms of trying to access higher education shaped, um, helped shape my PhD research. In, oops, moved on. This, I should say, this young man here is, he's the person that's responsible for this campaign originally. He's the person that was not, was unrelenting in wanting to campaign on access to higher education. He was the first person I supported to go to university. He got a first class honours degree, despite being destitute throughout his course. Throughout constant negotiations with the university to try and waive or cover his fees. He lived on the floor of an office in Dagenham and did the accounts for free for the company, so he had somewhere to sleep. It was a horrendous experience, but he managed, and one that I never wanted any other student to have to go through again. I should say by now, when he left university, he had refugee status, and his starting salary in his first job exceeded anything that I have earned. So he's, he's done very well for himself. He's one of the first success stories. Anyhow, this is the working title for my, for my thesis. I'm not sure if I'm going to keep it or not, but it's, it's the, the only title I have at the minute. Um, the simplest description of my research really is that I'm looking at, I'm exploring policy and practice in relation to the access, participation and success of forced migrants in higher education. And I'm looking at refugees and asylum seekers who I collectively refer to in my research as forced migrants. I go into much more detail within my research about the different categories and statuses within that, but for the purpose of today, um, I'm using the term forced migrant. So I'm looking at refugees who have resolved status, who do have the right to access student finance and are treated as home students, as well as people who are still seeking asylum or have some form of temporary status or limited status, which means they can't access student finance. So I'm looking at higher education as one of the multiple borders that forced migrants encounter when they enter into a country in which they seek asylum. And how they, how, they, how they encounter these borders, but also how they negotiate and navigate them in order to try and gain access and be successful within higher education. Looking very much at higher education institutions as sites of exclusion for many forced migrants, but also sites wherein resistance can take place, which is evident through a lot of the work that's taken place in, in the UK, but also in Sweden. Okay, moving on to the geographical context. So, I broadened the scope of my research to look not just at people without access to student finance. So a broader, category of, a broader category of forced migrants, but I also wanted to look beyond the UK to see what happened in other countries, to be able to make that comparison between, between places. I went around the world in terms of looking for where I might make a comparison with, um, and ended up choosing Sweden. Now the basis of the, the reason for choosing Sweden was that I wanted to make a comparison with, within the European Union. It's very difficult, do, I should point out, it's very difficult doing research at a time when there is a huge, you know, so much change through the period of my data collection in terms of what was happening 
in Europe, in terms of the number of people leaving Syria. I mean, it was, yeah, it's very, it's a very interesting time to try and do your research and collect data. And then obviously with Brexit last week, it adds to the, it adds another layer of um, things to consider and try and accommodate within my research. However, the reason between the reasons for comparing England and Sweden, sorry, the UK and Sweden, are the different. It's based on difference really, and the different approaches they had. One in terms of immigration, and traditionally Sweden has a much, has had a much more welcoming and generous policy in terms of immigration. That potentially is all going to change in Sweden. It's very much in flux at the minute, but they do they do they have a much higher percentage of forced migrants, immigrants in the country than the UK. Also, higher education is free in Sweden, whereas it's very expensive in the UK, much harder, there are financial barriers to accessing higher education. Um, so they're the, the main points of difference between the two countries. So in terms of how I actually went about doing my research, my research is qualitatively driven, it's very exploratory in nature, as, um, as people who were speaking earlier pointed out, there's very little data on forced migrants in access to higher education. So it was a case of having to, and I, and I endeavoured to do a survey as part of my methodology, which just didn't work at all. However, I've not got time to talk about that today. So really, my, my approach really was a, a very much interested in context and the context in which, in which events take place. And so looking really at the context within higher education, how, how the context in which universities operate and the challenges they face through internal and external pressures that are placed upon them and also the context in which forced migrants flee, transit to and seek asylum in different countries to really understand their experiences from the point at which they depart or life in their country of origin right through to the point at which they seek asylum and try and access higher education. Also the opportunity, the, the opportunity really to spend a lot of time within different universities because despite having spent many years working in universities to establish bursaries and scholarships, my research gave me the opportunity to look more holistically at what happened within different, within different institutions. I spoke to people, I used case study, a case study methodology to talk to people throughout institutions from the executive board to academics, student services staff, and forced migrant students who'd either graduated, were currently studying or wanted to study within that particular institution. And it gave me the opportunity to ask questions that I never usually asked. If a university was offering a scholarship or a bursary and was prepared to invest their resources, I didn't really ask too many questions, but just got on with trying to make that a reality for someone who could take up that place. So it was a, it was a very valuable opportunity to look in much greater depth at what happened and how processes worked or didn't work within universities. So, and I used semi-structured interviews throughout this. Okay, so I, I actually interviewed 99 people across both countries for my research, which makes me feel slightly, slightly funny when I say that because it's ridiculous. If anybody's thinking of doing a PhD, don't interview 99 people, you don't need to. However, I do have a lot of, I do have a lot of very interesting data. It's a shame I can't use all of it, but um, hopefully at some point in the future I'll be able to use it. There's a fairly even, across both countries, I spoke to a fairly even number of people in terms of university representatives, forced migrants. The only real difference is within key informants. I spoke to far more key informants in Sweden who worked in the wider uh, migration and um, higher education sector than in the UK because before I started my PhD, I'd never set foot in Sweden. So it was a whole new context for me to have to try and learn and understand. So I feel I don't quite... I don't really like showing people the structure of my thesis because I said it is very much in, in progress. But what I'm, how my thesis is shaping up in terms of how I'm presenting my findings, of which I'll go on to talk about three particular elements, 
The first chapter really is looking at the higher education perspective and how we can locate forced migrants within the higher education sector and within individual um, universities and their frameworks and how they operate. And the most significant finding really is to do, to how, to do with how invisible these students are within universities and within higher education. Then the second chapter refers to the forced migrant perspective and really mapping people's experiences and their narratives. Um, as they move from the country in which they were born through diff various different countries, sometimes five or six different countries, to arrive in a country in which they sought asylum. And particularly how experiences of limbo and liminality characterise their experiences throughout that process. And the third chapter, which I'm in the midst of writing at the moment, is really about how forced migrants can reclaim agency through access to higher education and how different barriers are constructed and produced in the UK and Sweden that serve essentially to try and prevent that happening. I'm not making a commitment to my fourth chapter. I've got a fairly good idea what I want to say, but I'm not prepared to share that with anybody just yet. Um, okay, so to talk about talk about a little bit about three key themes that have come out of my work. The first is the issue around the invisibility of forced migrants within higher education. And these these first quotes are all from staff working in Swedish universities. Now in Sweden, Sweden prides itself on its social, social democracy. Um, but one issue or one thing I found very difficult was the reluctance or the problems identifying, identifying difference, identifying different groups within Sweden. Because there's a belief by many people that social democracy results in everybody being equal in Swedish society. Therefore, they had, there would be no issues or there'd be no need to make allowances or accommodate difference. Um, widening participation is something that's not been on the Swedish agenda of higher education institutions for a long time. Well, over the past year it has, but the previous government, the eight years they were in power, they did nothing about widening participation, or as they call it in Sweden, widening access. It's not even about participation, but just about getting into university. Um, I mean, the extent to which the extent to which people felt that forced migrants were not needed to be identified in Sweden was evident that people didn't think I'd be able to do my research in Sweden. They never thought I would identify anyone from a forced migrant background, let alone interview them. Um, and I was advised on many times it'd be impossible to do my research or my the UK side would be much would dominate my thesis and there'd be very little about Sweden. Um, and this wasn't everybody, but significant numbers of people expressed these views to me. However, I did, however, manage to find a, a, I managed to find more people that I could actually interview. I'm not saying it was particularly easy at times, but it was it was possible. I didn't have I didn't have yeah I could recognise forced migrants in Sweden, and I think and I think other people I worked with could, but were perhaps un unwilling to acknowledge the fact that they were present in their universities or on courses. Um, there were also real issues with defining groups in Sweden. And one academic pointed out very clearly that you know there is an issue that if you don't identify people or define groups, you can just ignore them. I think that's what might happen quite, that, that does actually happen. But also by, by categorising people, you put, you put labels on them which they then can't shrug off or they can't leave and move on from. So I wasn't, I wasn't when I went to Sweden, I was aware that it might be difficult to, to find forced migrant students or that people in Sweden had difficulty identifying them as a group. As a group. However, I was really quite shocked at the extent of the invisibility of the students within the UK and within UK universities. The three, the UK is very different in that most people accept that society is unequal and that's evident in things like widening participation policy that 
it's accepted that certain groups of students are underrepresented in higher education. So I was coming out from a very different perspective in the UK when I was talking to, to institutions here. However, these are two quotes from very senior people at two different universities that I conducted case study research within. Both institutions had um, provided scholarships to Article 26 and had done for a number of years. And in one institution in particular, it had grown considerably over the, over the time it had been there. However, um, the, first, the first deputy VC, he was very keen to, you know, he didn't want to disappoint me in terms of the informality of the process. And what that really meant was he knew nothing about the process. He was completely unaware of these students, their needs, or their place in the institution. The second Pro Vice Chancellor told me that you explained was very explicit in explaining their role in the university and that their role was to um, to know it very very well and they prided themselves on their knowledge of the institution yet knew nothing about the project or the students or the impact they'd had or the process even the most basic details were completely absent from my conversations with them and I think this was a repeated theme and I think this is a, a problem more more broadly is that forced migrants are highly visible within immigration discourse and I think that they're very invisible within other areas of society including higher education and I think well it's evident from my transcripts that a lot of a lot of what people were saying about forced migrants was based on their imagination and not on any tangible reality or lived experience or knowledge of having met people from a forced migrant background um, that's something that came time and time again so, in terms of just to talk a bit more about limbo and looking at the forced migrant perspective, I never, in, I'm not, I knew that forced migrants experienced limbo, especially in the UK and the processes that left them with very little to do and rendered them immobile in terms of being able to work or study or rebuild their lives. However, I completely underestimated how far back that limbo went or when it, when it first started for some people. And I, hence me dedicating a whole chapter to it, I identified through my research five key contexts in which people experience limbo. The first of which was pre-flight within their country of origin. The second was in transit to the country in which they sought asylum. The third was post-arrival, so when they've arrived in a destination country, but before they've submitted a claim or an application for asylum. The fourth was in the process of claiming or, <coughs> excuse me, awaiting a decision on a claim. The fifth was the limbo induced by an award of temporary or limited immigration status. Sorry. So I explore these five different contexts in, in much greater detail, but just to give you a cup of flavour of the sort of um, some of the issues that came up. This is a quote by a young man called Halil. Now he was born in a Syrian refugee camp. He's the son of Palestinian refugees. So when he was born into refugee, when he was born into refugee camp, he'd never had any kind of formal status. He didn't formally belong in Syria, but he lived there his whole life. And he he really struggled with the concept when he was given status or a residence permit in Sweden. The fact that after 23 years, essentially, of living in limbo, he now officially belonged in a country. And while it might seem that that would make you very happy, it actually threw him into a very deep depression. It was very very difficult for him to try and. It's almost like rearranging his prior experiences to he it was incredibly incredibly difficult and it was not something he um i think now he's fully he has fully embraced it he's um he's using it to full effect but it was it was i think actually being awarded status reinforced the fact reinforced the difficult reinforced what had happened i suppose how, how difficult life would be for him in syria before that 
and how and what it felt like to belong somewhere and actually have a, a legitimate place in society. Um, Limbo in the Destination Country. This is another quote from a young man called Ali who. I touched something. I'll not move too much. Um, he's from Ali. Um, came to the UK from Afghanistan, and he talked about you know, the idea that when you reach a destination country, when you reach the place where you seek asylum, that somehow there is this hope that keeps you going, that life's going to get easier, it will improve, you will have this better life that so many people describe to me. And he said, they want to come to this country and stay here forever and plan their future, and if they can't, if they don't have that, they have no hope, because we suffer a lot, a lot to come to this country, put our life in danger, you know, we come by lorry, not many of us survive, but we survive, we come here, and if they don't give us a visa to stay forever, then that could be a big problem for us in the future. And he talked about loss a lot in his interview. And I should just point out as well, I never asked anybody to talk about their, their immigration journey. I never asked questions about why they sought asylum. Everything was framed around a narrative of education. Education, the country of origin, and how that changed, and how their, what their aspirations were if they came into a, a country in which they sought asylum. But many people chose to talk at length about it. Some in an interview, and some when I turned the tape recorder off, that's when they started telling me. That's when they said, now I'll tell you why I saw Sam. Let me tell you my story. So, but Ali talked at great length. And when he talked about loss, he lost his brother en route to the UK. So he lost his whole family when he left Afghanistan, but to lose his brother and to then be on his own, and the whole responsibility of that journey being worthwhile resting on his shoulders, to then come into the UK where he's given extended periods of discretionary leave as an unaccompanied minor, and the constant insecurity and uncertainty around that, um, had a huge traumatic effect, and just built on the trauma that he'd already experienced in getting to the UK. So, to just... I try very hard to try and calculate displacement and calculate limbo, which is very difficult to do because I spent a long time thinking about it. There's far too much diversity and variance in people's experience to be able to put a number on it as such. But the only way, um, the only way I have done is in terms of status in the destination country. That's the only way I've actually been able to do it, which I in a in a reasonable way. I've compared um, the length of time people wait for a site wait to have a decision on their claim for asylum or for it to be resolved in the UK with Sweden. Out of the 26 forced migrants I interviewed, the average wait in the well, the wait in the UK ranged between a few months and eight years. Now, if I also add into that the, the data I've recorded from Article 26, where I've been calculating limbo with the students that I've worked with, the 50 students there, it doubles in length of time people have been waiting 16 years to get a decision. However, in Sweden, no one that I spoke to have waited longer than a year. And again, that might change because there are many more people coming into Sweden, um, but then they've been dealing with much higher numbers of asylum claims for a long time. So, in terms of temporary status and further prolonged limbo because of a temporary award of status, the UK, the wait was between, well, for some people it was zero because they got refugee status. Other people waited up to nine years um, with an award of temporary status. In Sweden, everyone I spoke to, um, after submitting their claim for asylum and going through that process, were awarded a residence permit, which meant that they were able to, um, essentially, it was like getting refugee status in the UK. They could access anything, essentially, well, on paper, anything that a Swedish person could access. So... This is important because this is, a this is one of the critical differences and where it really starts to diverge in terms of people's experience 
in the destination country in the UK and Sweden. And I, I use the measure of time mainly because, well, it's, it's, a, it's an easy for people to understand, but also in all the years that I've spoken to forced migrants who wanted to access higher education or more generally in the U, you know, not just education but employment, um, people use time all the time. They talk about losing time and losing years. The amount of times I have a conversation with someone and say, I've lost four years, I've already lost two years, I lost one year here, I've lost two years in this country, I don't want to lose any more years. Or if I do that, I might lose another year. So it's a very, it's a very, it's a common language that people use to try and describe and convey their experiences. And which is demonstrated by um, another Syrian refugee who is living in Sweden who talked about three years that had been wasted. The three years wasted were time spent in Sweden learning Swedish which is a very controversial issue of Swedish language and the extent to which people speaking asylum need to learn to speak Swedish. But he felt that he could have graduated with his master's and moved on to employment and he would have been in a very different position if he hadn't lost those three years. He was still waiting to do a master's degree. However, he also kind of qualified his experiences of frustration at what was happening in Sweden with the fact that so many people that he knew and his fellow country folk who were stuck in camps where they had they had no way out or were internally displaced in Syria or just unable to leave Syria without the funds or the means to do so. So it's interesting. But I um yeah, I'm still I'm still looking at how I can how I can better better convey this frustration in terms of time within my within my thesis. Okay. This is I suppose leading on to a more specific discussion which I can't go into a great deal of detail here in this time about how different barriers manifest themselves in the UK and Sweden. Essentially, the same barriers exist in both countries, but they have a more pronounced or reduced effect in, in both in Sweden and the UK. So I'm looking really at how forced migrants use their existing capital of knowledge, uh, social political capital, knowledge capital, to acquire new capital in a new country which will help them navigate, navigate a new context in order to build what people repeatedly described to me as a better life, which was constituted very differently, but essentially revolved around them wanting to be socially and economically independent and really minimise their experiences of displacement, almost kind of catch up on the years that they've lost to be able to make up for the time they've lost and break free from the restrictions placed upon them by the limbo that they were forced to live within. The critical difference, I think, between the UK and Sweden, giving a quite a simplistic perspective, but just to try and I think it's best, it's the easiest way is to say that in the UK the barriers are very are much more explicit than they are in Sweden. In Sweden the barriers tend to be more implicit. I thought it, thought at first if you got status within a year and you could access university, you could access employment, no issues, that would be an advantage. But then there are a whole host of other issues that result in multiple lost years around recognition of qualifications and prior qualifications, prior experience, um, challenges posed by the Swedish language and the extent you need to be able to speak Swedish to be able to, I suppose, belong in Swedish society or be able to work and live in the country. Um, for example, and other, so language acquisition was very different in both countries, as was uh, accredited prior learning or recognition of prior learning, as we call it in the UK. Um, one senior person in the university in this country said to me that they thought given that the international student population of UK universities is much larger than Swedish universities, 
the UK are much better equipped to recognise qualifications gained overseas because they have an impetus to, um, in that they want those international students to come into the universities and to pay tuition fees. So there are they're, they're better they're better set up. There are still huge issues in in accrediting prior learning, but that is that is seen as an advantage in the UK. Um, and I suppose that come back to the idea of invisibility as well. There is very little incentive for universities in the UK to support students from a forced migrant background if they're not generating tuition fees, if there's no if there's no need to comply in terms of governance, if they're not classes underrepresented, need to be accounted for within access agreements. And in fact, there's often a disincentive in the fact that the Home Office are increasingly interested in students who are international but don't fall under Tier 4. Strictly speaking, they're not, they, they don't, you don't need a Tier 4 visa if you sought asylum in this country and want to study. However, compliance officers are having real difficulties in terms of how they manage the Home Office in respect to that. Um, which again fits with adhering to the managed migration and the fact that managed migration or the Home Office have a have an increasingly powerful role in UK universities, whereas in Sweden, the Migration Board have very little interest in Swedish universities and their international students. Um, again, this could all change because things are changing constantly. However, at the moment, so this is just to give a flavour of, of the, the, different, the different barriers and the different, and how print the, the extent to which they are a problem in both countries, which has led me to think about how you know the how essential a lot of these barriers are artificial artificial constructs they don't need to be there and it's not necessarily with a clear intent but with a definite consequence that these barriers serve to maximize the marginalization of forced migrants and minimize their opportunities to be socially mobile and to establish a new life in a new country so to quickly to quickly recap how much time have I got left you've got 10 minutes oh, have I? okay um Within Article 26, the support that Article 26 has always, the way we've worked with universities um, is to persuade, is to work with universities to establish scholarships, which basically mean that the, the minimum requirement is that they waive the tuition fees for students. So they don't have to pay tuition fees because that's the largest, that's the, the biggest barrier. Um, but then building on that over the years, increasingly universities have offered increasing amounts of student support and other uh, different services within the institution to support them to succeed. But that was the bare minimum that they provided a full tuition fee waiver. Now, within the invisibility, I mean, in the very beginning as well, when the, when the article, sorry, when the Brighter Futures group started working on this issue, I was warned by various institutions and different individuals that I shouldn't be trying to make this, this shouldn't be a public campaign. That we should encourage universities to use their discretion to enable the, the, the prospective students that were participants in Brighter Futures to go to university. But the group was adamant that they didn't, they didn't want, they weren't looking to, they wanted to go to university, but it wasn't just about them going to university, it was about any other forced migrant who wants to go to university. They wanted to, it was not just, it was not, it was not individualistic in terms of their own needs, but thinking of the wider needs of their, of their friends and people that they didn't know, but knew would want to go to university in the UK. So, we really did, I mean, but publicising scholarships is something that we did do and continue to do, and I don't know the extent to which this has had a negative impact on universities using their discretion, because it is discretionary. I don't know what, uni if universities don't, I'm aware of some universities and some schemes or things that are done, but it's not something that there is, I don't have a clear picture across the UK of what happens outside of bursaries and scholarships that are publicly promoted. 
I was also aware in terms of the students that I've supported to go to university, uh, the, how difficult it's been and the fact that universities haven't really, they find it difficult to locate them within a different department or within different people to look after them. I think part of that could be to do with, you know, are they international, are they home students, where do they, where do they, where do they lie? They don't really fit in either category from a university perspective. And also the fact there's no funding attached to them. That can also be disincentive for certain departments and certain, within certain institutions. People have been very honest with me in my research about that. However, and I knew that when people go to admissions to try and register, they have barriers in terms of where we don't understand how you can have this scholarship, we just don't understand what that is. So I was aware of all of this, but I was shocked at the extent of the lack of knowledge within the institutions that I spent time in, within wider staff, within outreach, outreach staff refusing to promote these opportunities because they were for a small number of people and how did they manage that and whereas other institutions have embedded it within outreach opportunities and it's worked really well but it's trying to convince universities and give them the confidence to do that which is which is very challenging. In terms of limbo, Article 26, we always thought that this would be an opportunity to minimise people's experience of limbo and give them something constructive to do during the time they're waiting for a sound claim to be decided. However, Again, I was really, yeah, it was really interesting to understand people's narratives from country of origin <coughs> to the UK and beyond, and to try to understand what had, especially spent a lot of time with the Swedish universities trying to convince them of this, is that people are very frustrated in Sweden about how long it takes to do anything. And I've tried to put that in the context of the frustrations that they have before they even got to Sweden. Um, and that how for the, you know, for, for a lifetime these frustrations can have been building. And to try and put to try and put people's experiences in context of what happens outside of Sweden or outside of the UK. So it's useful to be able to have the it's useful to be able to have the research findings to support that, which is very which is very interesting, and to tell to tell it through the, through the stories of the people that I interviewed and spent time with. Um, the comparative element of the research, although it's challenging to do to do to do this scale of research within my PhD, it really did facilitate much more nuanced understanding of explicit and implicit barriers and how they're produced and the different strategies that can be used to overcome them both by universities but also by the power of forced migrants as they strive to reclaim their agency through access to higher education against in seemingly insurmountable odds and i think some institutions i've worked with in the uk just couldn't quite comprehend how a student could study in the circumstances that, that they did um, with limited funding without access to a maintenance loan for example far from perfect circumstances in which to study but all the students that chose that chose to take up a scholarship it was an informed choice and by getting people into university that's when universities started to really understand what the issues were um, rather than in an abstract way but in a very tangible concrete way and they saw them as people and individuals they needed to help and the amount of support has grown considerably over the past six years for students and universities now offering support that equates to student finance which means there is far greater equality within those institutions and the experiences those students have. So it's incredibly difficult when I think about people like the man I showed you at the beginning about his experience of higher education. That's a good point of reference for seeing how far it's been able to come so quickly. So just to show you, just to quickly say, 49 students have been directly supported by Article 26 to undertake a higher education, an undergraduate degree in higher education. And 30 people have graduated so far, but that number's growing because we have this year's graduates. They're all starting to get their degree results through at the moment, which is always a lovely time of year. Um, in 2010, there were three bursaries on, on offer at three universities. In this academic year, 
this probably isn't accurate, it's probably gone up since, there are 74 bursaries available. Article 26 isn't responsible for the creation of all those scholarships by any stretch. Lots of different organisations are now getting involved in terms of lobbying universities to offer support to, to students from a forced migrant background. However, this is just to give you an idea about the scale of growth in a relatively short period of time and to also acknowledge that within this time, when we started, um, if you had limited leave or discretionary leave, you could still access student finance and student support. So that's changed. Tuition fees have trebled. So in spite of all these, in spite of essentially everything working against the work of the project, it's managed to, to keep going and students have still managed to graduate in the harshest of circumstances. Um, okay. Quick talk about the future. This is a very, this is a very, um, I suppose bringing it back to bring it back to what to what happens next, really, in terms of the work of the project and how it can have, I suppose, how it's been affected by the actual research I've been doing, and not just by the research, but also by what's happened over the course of last year in particular and the different people that are coming into the UK. There is a real need to access more courses. Originally, this was about undergraduate degree programs because the young people we were meeting. They'd never had an opportunity to study in higher education, so the emphasis was on people who'd never had never had any experience of higher education having that opportunity to do a degree. However, an increasing number of universities were offering access to postgraduate courses, also encouraging universities to look at foundation degree programmes and other ways that, that students can access a degree if they don't have their qualifications with them. If there is a way of doing short-term courses or modules or some way to kind of demonstrate their prior knowledge and learning without having documents, which is incredibly difficult and I don't have an answer as to how it can work, but it's something we're very aware of that needs some more attention. Um, oh, NHS courses as well, that's a whole other area. NHS professional practice is another big area that we need to address and we produced a policy briefing with Refugee Support Network last year, which um, which Salford University been very supportive of and they're now, last year they started a student on a BA social work programme, this year a student is starting on a BA radiography, pro BSc radiography programme and we're hoping to do some kind of tracker research to try and get a better understanding about the different barriers that are, that are specific to those degree programmes and how they can be overcome to develop a model of practice that we can share with other institutions. So Salford have been very supportive and very brave in terms of taking on take on students onto those courses. Um, revising process and procedure is constantly needing to happen to make sure it's relevant to students and that's something particularly the application selection process needs need really does need revising. We're talking to universities over the course of this year, especially in the context of the interviews, so that's an area that does need addressing. Um, I should point out that Article 26 it kind of operates on a day-a-week basis at the moment while I'm doing my thesis, so is the capacity is, is an issue. So there's so many things I'd like to do but they have to kind of wait till I've written my thesis at the moment. Um, higher education autonomy. This is another area that we're looking at in quite a lot of detail about how we can encourage and support universities to have the confidence to use their autonomy to support students with unresolved applications for asylum. And looking particularly, particularly in the culture of compliance and how that works. At the moment it's a very grey area and we're trying to put something very tangible there in terms of specific policy and practice about how universities can with confidence take on students with unresolved status to study within their institution. So, if you're interested in these issues more broadly, we have an annual conference for Article 26. The original purpose of the conference was to get the students together. So in 2010, 2011, it was me, the three students, a, uh, someone, a trustee from HKF in a back room of a church hall in Manchester. 
where we ate chicken and chips and talked about our hopes and dreams. So it's very small scale, but we've, we've grown considerably since, and it's over three days this year. The 14th of December is, is the day when we invite university representatives and different organisations if they want to come along. We'll be talking about all the issues that I talked about on the previous slide and more. You also get to witness the, the annual Article 26 um, graduation ceremony that we have for our students, which is, which is I think, very nice. Um, Newnham College at Cambridge are hosting us this year, which is fantastic. It's a, it's a fantastic venue. Um, if you want to come, I can send you a booking form. It's very good value. We only charge £50 to cover catering and refreshment costs. So if you'd like to, everybody's very, very welcome. If you would like to attend, please, please do let me know. Um, time. I'd also like to draw attention to Education for All, which is a guide that we produced at Article 26, which basically is our compendium on how to recruit, um, how to recruit students, how to go through application selection, and support students right through to graduation. And within that, we talk about the substantial changes that can take place within during the course of a degree programme, especially a three-year undergraduate programme in relation to status, whether be it positive or negative, what the implications are, in order to try and support students to be able to complete their degree, whatever the circumstances and however those circumstances change. Thank you.